This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This episode is titled 500 Years, Part 5. Can't we all just get along? As we come to the 500-year anniversary of Reformation Day, when Martin Luther tacked his revolutionary list of exceptions to current church practice and belief, to the council church door in the German town of Wittenberg, we're faced with the realization that the Reformation embraced many more people than the popular telling of history enumerates. Many more. Who do we think of when we think of the Reformation? Martin Luther and John Calvin are the first two that most would name. Then, with a bit more searching of the gray matter, maybe Philip Melanchthon and Ulrich Zwingli. There are, of course, dozens more notables who played important roles in the drama that was the Reformation. One of them is the focus of this episode, a man and name that ought to be as prominent in our knowledge of this period as Zwingli or Melanchthon. His name is Martin Bucer, the reformer of Strasbourg. Before we get into his story, a little background on the situation in Germany is a good idea. As moderns, we're used to thinking of history in terms of nation-states. Even as we think back to ancient times, we tend to cast the dominant empires as just, well, very old versions of nation-states. That, despite the fact that the modern nation-state of Western civilization is a relatively recent invention. We need to exercise caution as we review the history of Renaissance Europe and the period of the Reformation because it was this period of time that helped set the political climate for the eventual emergence of the modern world with its nearly ubiquitous carving up of the globe into nations with clearly defined borders. Voltaire once said, quote, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, Roman, nor an empire, unquote. Yet that's what we call that collection of principalities that formed a loose political collection from the 9th to the 17th centuries. In the 16th century, the Holy Roman Empire was politically centralized, really in name only. It was composed of several politically different regions that put a significant check on the emperor's power. It was this division of power that made the Reformation possible and helps explain why it took root in Germany rather than in some place like France or Spain. As the series that we did in season one, The Long Road to Reform, makes clear, there had been many attempts at reform of the church prior to Luther and the early 16th century, but none had the Reformation's success precisely because they well, usually took place in areas that were governed by a single monarch dedicated to Rome. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was also Rome's guy, but he only held his office due to the endorsement of seven German prince-electors who regularly differed from him on various issues. These powerful electors and the noble houses that they were scions of had debated for years about the desirability of a break with Rome. Martin Luther was able to succeed where others failed precisely because he arrived at a time when enough of these electors had grown fed up with Rome's meddling, the emperor was politically weak, and the common people universally recognized the corruption of the church's upper echelon. 
Martin Luther's political region was Saxony, ruled by the powerful and well-regarded elector Frederick III, known as Frederick the Wise. His successors, both of them named John, followed Frederick's support for Luther. The powerful Landgraf, that is Count, Philip of Hesse, which was nestled west of Saxony, east of the Rhine, was another avid supporter of the Reformation. That support will play a key role in later developments for both Bucer and Luther. The emperor walked a political tightrope as he sought to balance the demands of these tetchy electors, dozens of lesser principalities, and the growing number of politically powerful free imperial cities that were ruled by councils that often acted as sovereign governments. As if that wasn't enough, Charles V also had war on multiple fronts to deal with. France in the west, the Ottomans in the east, and Italy to the south. The Reformation leaders realized that the time was ripe for them to sever ties with Rome since the emperor needed their support to deal with the external threats. It was a political perfect storm for a religious movement to emerge. Martin Bucer was born in the French region known as Alsace, next to Germany, in the free imperial city of Schlettelstadt. His family were coopers by trade, barrel makers. Nothing much is known of Martin's mother. His hometown boasted a well-known school where families of the Bucer social class sent their children. He graduated there in 1507, and then, at his grandfather's insistence, became a monk novice in the Dominican order. A year in, he was made an acolyte in Strasbourg, where he took vows as a friar. By 1510, he was ordained a deacon. Bucer then began studying theology in the Dominican monastery in Heidelberg five years later. A brief trip to Mons saw him taking a course in dogmatics, and it was there that he was ordained as a priest. In 1517, he returned to Heidelberg to enroll in the university. And it was there that Bucer began to be influenced by the ideas of Erasmus and his fellow humanists. It was also there at Heidelberg that everything was to change for him. In April of 1518, Johannes von Stoppitz, uh, Augustinian vicar general, invited an upstart Augustinian monk named Martin Luther from Wittenberg to debate that monk's increasingly troublesome views. That debate is known now as the Heidelberg Disputation, and it's where Bucer met Luther for the first time. In a long letter to his friend, Bucer recounted what he learned, commenting on several of the theses that Luther had posted and that had been printed up and spread all over Germany. They were the points that Stoppitz wanted to dispute, but Bucer found himself intrigued by them, doubly so after hearing Luther's defense. He agreed and found in Luther's points much to connect with his emerging humanist ideas. The following year, Bucer received his degree and while giving his disputation before the faculty of Heidelberg, made clear his theological break with Aquinas and scholasticism. Bucer's next step in joining the Reformers was his departure from the Dominicans. That story is interesting and reads like a novel. The Grand Inquisitor of Cologne was the Dominican Jacob von Hoogstraten. He launched an inquiry into the teaching and views of the famous humanist scholar Johann Reuschlin. Now, in some places, as in Spain, once the Inquisition set its sights on someone, everyone else beat a hasty retreat lest suspicion fall on them as well, but not in Germany. Things were different there precisely because of the much weaker political structure. So when Reuschland fell afoul of Hoogstraten, 
several German nobles took Reuschland's side, forcing Hoogstraten to back down. Thwarted, he was now compelled to prove his title as Grand Inquisitor, and so he set his sights on Bucer, who he felt was an easier and more vulnerable target. When word reached Bucer that he was now in the Inquisition's crosshairs, he decided to leave the Dominicans. Friends in the order expedited the annulment of his vows, which were officially severed in April of 1521. Though the Inquisition was now technically not able to go after him, it could work to see that annulment of his vows reversed. And so over the next two years, the nobles who had backed Reuschlin came to Bucer's aid as well. He went to work as a chaplain in the court of the Elector of the Palatine and lived in the city of Nuremberg, at that time the most powerful city of the empire. The city government was a major supporter of the Reformation, and the city became something of a magnet for other reformers. It was there that Bucer met many who shared his views. In the fall of 1521, Bucer accepted an offer to become the pastor of the church at Lahnstuhl. The next summer, he met and married a former nun named Elizabeth. The city of Lahnstuhl was the center of one of Bucer's noble defenders, Franz von Sickingen, a German knight of confused reputation. Sickingen seems something of an opportunist, who sided with the commoners when it served to increase his wealth and prestige, but then would back the nobles for the same reason. He was something of a political pragmatist, who saw in the Reformation a way to advance both his personal agenda while giving vent to his loyalty to the German people. He'd built himself a virtually impregnable castle at Lahnstuhl, at least impregnable by medieval styles of siegecraft. It became the scene of his ultimate defeat in 1523, when in a battle with other German nobles, artillery was used for one of the first times. Wanting to advance the Reformation in his capital, Sickingen sent Bucer to Wittenberg for further study with Luther and his assistant Melanchthon. Bucer then stopped in the town of Weissenberg on the way there and was persuaded by the local reformer Heinrich Motherer to stay and work for a time as chaplain. Bucer went to work preaching sermons each day, calling for immediate reform. His special focus was abuse in the monastic orders. He was an ardent advocate of the Reformation solas, especially sola scriptura and sola fide. He decried the Mass as a recapitulation of Christ's saving work. He lambasted the monasteries as turning the gospel into a system of salvation by works. Summing up his ideas in six theses, he called for a public disputation with his opponents, of which there were not a few. But the Franciscans and the Dominicans ignored his challenge. Bad move on their part because it seemed to say to the local townspeople that they were afraid of not being able to refute Bucer's charges of corruption. Those townspeople, further agitated by Martin's sermons, began threatening the local monasteries. And that was too much for the bishop at Speyer, who then excommunicated Bucer. In a sign of the way things would go across Germany in the decades that followed, the town council decided to support the now persona non grata Bucer, rather than jail or exile him, thereby serving Rome that it would no longer align under its leadership. Events beyond the Weissenberg town limits put Bucer in peril. When his benefactor von Sickingen was defeated and killed during the Knights' Revolt that I just mentioned, the Weissenberg Council urged Bucer to leave. He fled to nearby Strasbourg. It was May of 1523, and it's there that Martin Bucer had his greatest impact.
Though Busser arrived in Strasbourg as a political refugee with no visible means of support and no legal rights as a citizen, within just three months he'd become a settled fixture and influential voice there. Upon his arrival, Busser immediately wrote to Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, asking for a post there where he could help the burgeoning Reformation cause. But before he heard back, the reformist-minded Strasbourg City Council asked Busser to assist their local pastor by serving as his chaplain. Busser began teaching Bible and was so effective that one of the local guilds appointed him as the pastor of St. Aurelia's Church. Strasbourg couldn't have the pastor of one of its most influential churches not be a citizen, and so citizenship was granted. Busser was joined in Strasbourg by a team of capable minds, all united by the Reformation cause. Matthew Zell, Wolfgang Capito, and Caspar Hedeo. Early on, Busser called for a debate with Thomas Murner, a monk who'd attacked Luther with biting satire. Though Strasbourg's council leaned toward the reformist camp, like so many German political leaders of this time, it tended to vacillate on installing Reformation ideals. They wanted to reform the church, but balked at implementing changes to the civil sphere that would set them at odds with the emperor and his allies. Because Buther and his reformer pals had the ear of the masses, hostility toward the civil magistrates grew apace with their hostility toward the Roman clergy. That hostility boiled over when a local Augustinian leader denounced the reformers and the Strasbourg City Council as heretics. Furious mobs broke into and looted the local monasteries. Opponents of the Reformation were arrested, including that Augustinian leader. That proved the crisis that moved the Strasbourg Council to realize that it could no longer vacillate. They asked Busser to produce an official statement clarifying for all what their theological position was. He drafted 12 articles outlining Reformation doctrine. Missing were such things as the Mass, monastic vows, veneration of saints, and the doctrine of purgatory. He specifically rejected the authority of the Pope, but emphasized obedience to civil government. The opponents to the Reformation who'd been arrested were released and exiled, ending any and all hurdles to the Reformation in Strasbourg. And all this before the fall of 1523, the same year that Busser arrived there. Strasbourg's reformers then set about to build a new order of service for their churches. As their basic template, they adopted the order that was already in use in Zurich by the churches influenced by Zwingli, then made some tweaks to it. In an ambitious move, they suggested that all churches of the Reformation adopt the same order and presented their proposal to the luminaries at both Wittenberg and Zurich. Now, before we carry on with Martin Busser's story, we need to pause for another narrative sidebar. The central debate that reformers carried on among themselves and the cause that ended up producing several different Reformation streams was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper or communion, or the Eucharist. Early on, a rift appeared between Martin Luther and the Swiss reformers led by Zwingli. Avoiding an overly technical dissertation, let me summarize the two positions by saying that Luther adamantly affirmed a real presence of Christ in the bread and wine of communion, while Zwingli regarded the elements of communion as symbolic memorials to Christ and his work. For longtime listeners to Communio Sanctorum, these views were rooted in the Christological debates of the 4th and 5th centuries that we spent so much time on in both Season 1 and in the Creed series of Season 2. 
Luther emphasized the unity of Christ's person, saying that his human attributes were infused by his divine attributes so that he was present everywhere, including in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Zwingli emphasized Christ's dual nature as God and man, and that his body, while real, was resurrected and sat at the right hand of the Father in glory. At the Marburg Colloquy, where Lutherans and the Swiss met to seek concord, they were able to agree to 13 articles, but could not achieve agreement on the last, detailing this issue of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's been told that in the discussions between Luther and Zwingli, as Zwingli waxed long on a philosophical treatise supporting his position, Luther took a piece of chalk and wrote on the table in front of him, This is my body. As Zwingli kept talking, Luther just tapped the table beneath the words. As one biographer on this says, at Worms, Luther had announced that his conscience was held captive by the word of God. Well, there at Marburg, he clung to the same conviction. He would not allow himself to be swayed from Christ's simple statement, this is my body, by the erudite and reasoned position of Zwingli. So intractable was Luther on this issue, and so suspicious did he become of Zwingli's attempt to dissuade him, Luther went so far as to suggest the Swiss weren't Christians. But that wasn't something that he regarded very long. Indeed, as the Marburg Colloquy wrapped up, Zwingli asked Luther to draw up a list of the things that they agreed on as a standard for all Reformation churches. Luther and Melanchthon, and really it was mostly the later's work, produced a total of 15 articles that became the standard accepted at Schwabach in 1529. Lutherans and the Swiss agreed on all but the last dealing with the Lord's Supper. And that last point reads thus, as formulated by Melanchthon with Luther's approval. Quote, Regarding the last supper of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, we believe and hold that one should practice the use of both species as Christ himself did, which by both species, they meant the bread and the wine. Remember that Roman Catholics only used the wafer. Reformers advocated using both bread and wine in the celebration of communion. I return to the statement. And that the sacrament at the altar is a sacrament of and here we see the distinct Lutheran doctrine of the real presence. It's a sacrament of the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, and the spiritual enjoyment of this very body and blood is proper and necessary for every Christian. Furthermore, that the practice of the sacrament is given and ordered by God the Almighty, like the Word, so that our weak conscience might be moved to faith through the Holy Spirit. And then Melanchthon adds some verbiage acknowledging the differing positions of the Reformers. He goes on, And although we have not been able to agree at this time whether the true body and blood of Christ are corporeally present in the bread and wine, meaning of, of communion, each party should display towards the other Christian love, so far as each respective conscience allows, and both should persistently ask God the Almighty for guidance so that through his spirit he might bring us to a proper understanding, unquote. This theological division not only caused massive theological problems, it produced a plethora of political problems. Those German princes who'd supported the Reformation had hoped for a religious harmony to support their break with both Rome and the emperor. A fractured Protestant church was both politically and militarily weak. 
Busser recognized this and worked feverishly to effect a compromise that would unite the Lutherans and the Swiss. His efforts resulted in several important documents. His views of the Lord's Supper influenced Calvin, who also sought to effect a compromise between the two groups. Busser's work toward that end began just a year after arriving in Strasbourg and continued for several years. Busser himself had abandoned a belief in the real presence of Christ in the elements after his own study. What troubled Martin was the insistence by both Luther and Zwingli on maintaining their positions in peril of their unity and the disharmony it engendered, allowing a rift that weakened them in the face of hostile parties. He asked for their unity to be based on what they agreed on rather than disunity based on where they differed. Now, Busser's story goes on longer, but unfortunately, not this episode, so we need to wrap it up. He ministered in Strasbourg for 25 years, and while his attempts to reconcile the Swiss and the Lutherans was unfruitful, he did achieve a short-lived concord in 1536. But Busser's reputation was dealt a terrible blow by his support of the Count of Hesse's bigamy that we've talked about in other places. It was Busser who persuaded Luther to support Philip's secret marriage to a second wife. Along with Melanchthon, Busser took part in the unsuccessful conversion of the Archbishop of Cologne in 1542. When the Protestant princes lost the Schmalkaldic War, the victorious Charles V convened a meeting at Augsburg to draw up articles known as the Interim. Busser was invited to attend and to be a voice for drafting the articles. When his edits were rejected, he was arrested and eventually coerced into signing them. But when he returned to Strasbourg, he attacked the interim and continued his calls for reform of the church. The city council, now under close watch by imperial authorities, asked Busser to zip it. When he showed no sign of doing so, they asked him to leave. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer in England was watching events on the continent with interest. He invited Busser and his pals, who'd been booted from Strasbourg, to come to England and help with the Reformation cause there. They arrived in April of 1549, and within days were introduced to King Edward VI. Busser was given a position as a professor of divinity in Cambridge. In going to England, Busser had great hopes of spreading the influence of the Reformation's objective of simplifying the church's liturgy. His reforms made little headway against the magisterial nature of the Church of England. His greatest influence is likely to be found in the second edition of the Book of Common Prayer, which Cranmer asked him to review and to edit. England proved to be an unhealthy environment for the now aging Martin. In 1551, his health finally broke and he died on the last day of February at the age of 59. In eulogy, one of his scholarly friends wrote of Busser, quote, we are deprived of a leader, then the whole world would scarcely obtain a greater, whether in knowledge of true religion, or in integrity and innocence of life, or in thirst for study, or the most holy things, or in exhausting labor in advancing piety, or in authority and fullness of teaching, or in anything that is praiseworthy and renowned." Unquote. Two years after his death, when Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, came to the throne, as part of her effort to restore Catholicism, she tried Busser posthumously for heresy. His casket was dug up, his remains burned, along with copies of his writings. Then, when Elizabeth ascended the throne, she restored Busser's legacy. 
A brass plaque now marks the original location of his grave. Yeah.